Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be doing another historical gaming episode. And before we begin, first I do apologize about the lateness of this episode. I usually try to get it up a lot earlier in the week, but I, those of you who've been following my podcast for a while, you know that I don't, I'm not always very consistent with what day my episodes drop on. I usually try to uh, do it on Tuesday or Wednesday because, of course, uh, Thursday is usually when Musically Challenged drops and Friday is when I'll usually be posting whose podcast is it anyway. Uh, Also, it's been kind of a rough week, and you might notice that in the tone of my voice. My throat's been eh, a little on the iffy side this week, and of course, it doesn't help that I have a job where I I spend most of my day talking. So, yeah, it can make it kind of hard to recover from, you know, any sort of stress on your voice when you spend eight hours of the day talking to people. But anyways, you're not here to listen to me talk about my personal life, of course. You're here to listen to me talk about things that hopefully you'll find interesting, entertaining, preferably both. And it's been a while since I've done a historical gaming episode, so for this week we're going to be talking about Thailand. Now, I have to give you the mispronunciation disclaimer most likely I am mispronouncing a lot of the ethnic uh, names and words that I'm going to be discussing in today's episode. So let's talk about Thailand. Now, when most people think of Thailand, they're probably thinking of kickboxers, Muay Thai. And this is easy to understand because the you know, the image of the Muay Thai boxer and, you know, fighter has really taken hold in popular culture. I mean, we've, you know, seen them in various movies, like uh, there was a kickboxer in Bloodsport, and of course, another one of Jean-Claude Van Damme's movies, uh, well, Kickboxer. Also, we see them appear quite frequently in video games, uh, some Uh, Muay Thai fighters that I can name off the top of my head from different video games. Uh, Well, in Mortal Kombat, uh, Jackson Briggs, or Jax as they always call him, he was said to be a practitioner of Muay Thai. And we also have from the Fatal Fury and King of Fighters series, uh, there is Joe Higashi. And he had a rival I know in the first one. I forgot his name, but he was also a kickboxer as well. And, of course, in Street Fighter, uh, we've got Sagat, who is one of the main major bad guys in that particular mythology. And I haven't really played a lot of the newer Street Fighter games, so I'm not sure if they've introduced other uh, kickboxers in there other than Sagat, but I'm sure there's probably been a few others as the uh, game has progressed. So, And those are just a few that I can name off the top of my head. So you might be tempted to say, okay, if we're doing a historical campaign 
in Thailand. First of all, the monk is going to be right at home. But if you want to have him be a Muay Thai fighter, well, then you're actually going to have to set your campaign fairly recently because Muay Thai originated in the early 1900s. And it actually draws a lot of its inspiration from a couple other martial arts that I'm going to be talking about. And the reason that Muay Thai came about is because uh, people in Thailand were trying to, well, they were probably um, influenced by Western boxing and how there were these competitive combat sports. So they tried to think of a way to turn their, you know, their uh, traditional fighting styles into something that could be considered more of a a sport or a combative art. Now, the name itself, Muay Thai, it means something to the effect of the art or science of eight limbs. And that's because in Muay Thai, there's eight points of contact. What do I mean by points of contact? Well, let's take a look at boxing first. Regular boxing, there's just two points of contact. The only part of your body that you are legally allowed to hit someone with are your fists. So no kicking, knees, headbutts, elbows, anything like that. Now in a lot of other competitive martial arts like karate and taekwondo, that has four points of contact. Generally, you're only allowed to really hit with your hands and your feet. Muay Thai There's eight points of contact. Your fists, your elbows, your knees, and your shins. These are the parts of the body that are most often used to attack. Now, Muay Thai is predated by another martial art called Muay Boran. And this art predates Muay Thai by approximately 100 years or so. Now, according to folklore... Uh, the roots of this art can be traced back to the 18th century. A boxer named Nai Kanotam was captured by Burma, and after a few years in captivity, the king organized a tournament to see how his fighters would fare against the captive Thai fighters. Now, before his fight, Nai performed something called Wai Kru, and the uh, the excuse me, the Burmese fighters they didn't know what this was. They didn't know what this strange dance that Nai was doing, what it was supposed to be. So they actually thought it was a form of magic, because after uh, he performed this this ritual, this Y crew, he proceeded to defeat several fighters in a row. And this led his opponents to think that uh, not only was this Y crew a form of magic, but that the Thai warriors actually had poison in their hands and in their limbs. Now, the truth about Y crew, it's not really magic. It's more or less a, a customary dance and prayer that is done before the match. It's used to pay respects to your teacher as well as the ancestors. Now, if we look even further back, there's another art called Moi Chaya, 
and this was founded a few hundred years earlier. This was originally the common man style of, of boxing. It had a bigger emphasis on movement and defense and less emphasis on being able to absorb a lot of damage. The philosophy is to take the opponent down hard and fast. One video on YouTube I watched about this particular martial art referred to it as sneaky and nasty. There's also an emphasis on taking out an opponent's legs as well as stopping an attack before it begins. So just watching some of the videos about this art, it was interesting to see their footwork because it was more of a hopping type footwork and they also tended to keep their arms in a lot closer to their bodies than what I've seen on a lot of other martial arts. And I'd said that if the practitioner is performing this art correctly, the only target he will give you to hit are his knees and his elbows, and those are two of the hardest parts of the body. So, yeah, it can be kind of painful if you punch someone in the knee or in the directly in the elbow. So one of the biggest differences, though, between Muay Thai and, and Muay Boran and Muay Chaya is that Muay Boyan and Muay Chaya were designed specifically for combat, where, as I said earlier, Muay Thai was designed primarily for sport. And one of the reasons we can see this is uh, Muay Boran incorporates more ground fighting and grappling, whereas Muay Thai is primarily a stand-up art. Now, of course, this is not to say that Muay Thai is useless in a real fight. Those guys put themselves through intense physical and mental conditioning. So, how might we incorporate this in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign? I suppose you could give someone who specializes in Muay Thai, though again, if you are going to be running your campaign before the 1900s, uh, including Muay Thai is going to be a bit of an anachronism. But you could say that someone who specializes in a style similar to Muay Thai could get a damage reduction bonus against you know, non-magic weapons or, or at least just unarmed attacks and uh, grappling because they do train themselves for that mental toughness. They are trained to be able to absorb lots of punches and kicks and other blows like that. Now, whether you want to include that damage reduction bonus against things like knives, swords, arrows, or magic, it's up to you, really. But I don't—I suppose a minor damage reduction bonus wouldn't really hurt the campaign. Now, Moi Chaya, as I said, that one focuses on being sneaky and nasty. So this could be a good art for someone who's not afraid to take cheap shots, or I guess another way you could say it is it's more of a cunning art where you focus more on tricking your opponent into dropping his defenses so you can deliver a strike. So maybe you could give them an attack bonus so they, they're more accurate. They have a, a bonus to hit, but they don't quite have the as much of a much power behind it, so not as much of a damage bonus. 
Moiboran, on the other hand, that seems to be kind of the nice mid-ground where it's seems to be a bit more balanced between speed, power, technique, and brute strength. Now, another thing we notice when we look at Thai kickboxers and fighters in movies and video games, you usually see them with their hands wrapped in rope or uh, tape. And this actually does come from Moi Boran. The rope was meant to protect the fighter's hands as well as increase damage to his opponent. And of course, once they were introduced to uh, Western boxing gloves, then they started to put uh, use those materials instead because, yeah, it would still protect the fighter's hands, but it wouldn't do as much damage to the opponent. Now, another common thing we see with Muay Thai fighters in video games and movies and such is it's not unusual to see them wearing a a headband or a headdress or a strip of cloth on the upper arm, on, on the bicep. Now, again, these do have their roots in the earlier martial arts traditions. The cloth worn around the bicep is called a pra jihad. Now, this strip of cloth, it dates back to a tradition where soldiers going off to war would wear a strip of cloth from a loved one's clothing. It's believed that this armband helped protect the wearer from evil spirits, as well as granting him luck. And I think this does give you some interesting potential for magic items that you could incorporate. So I, I could easily see allowing someone to, or allowing this item um, to serve a similar function to a ring of protection. Maybe wearing one of them uh, will give you an armor class bonus or a bonus to your saving throws. And I suppose you could also think of other ways to incorporate that as well, where maybe, like for example, if I was to uh, form a pra jihad from a strip of my wife's clothing, maybe it's going to have a better effect for me than it would for a friend of mine if he was to uh, wear one of these items. Now, the headband or headdress is called a Mong Quan. And this headgear was a symbol of the fighter's skill. It was given to him by the trainer once that instructor felt that the student reached a certain level of proficiency. Now, this headgear was extremely sacred, and it was believed that it should not be allowed to touch the ground. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that monks get to have all the fun in a Thai campaign. There is another weapon-based martial art, which you could allow for fighters, rangers, and paladins if you decide to incorporate those into your campaign. And that martial art is called Krabi Krabong. This is more of a weapon-based art. And I was interested in learning a little bit more about this because, you know, long-time listeners to the show, you probably remember that I do talk about my own martial arts background every now and then, uh, where I have had some training in karate and kung fu, but I've also studied another martial art, Eskrima, uh, Filipino stick and knife fighting. 
Now, Krabi Krabong, the main weapon that is used in this particular martial art is the Krabi, which is a curved single-bladed sword similar to a saber. Often, these weapons are used in pairs. One thing that was I thought looked unusual about the this type of sword is that the the handle was a bit longer than you'd expect for a a weapon that's usually going to be used one-handed and uh, you know when I watched some videos uh, demonstrating some of these techniques I also noticed that when they were using just sticks it was held higher up than what I learned in Eskrima. Now when I studied Eskrima you would usually have anywhere from one to three inches between the butt of your stick and the bottom of your hand, where it looked like with these guys, uh, their style would have a, quite a bit more, maybe about six to eight inches um, between the butt of the weapon and your hand. So this seemed to actually be quite useful because it could give you some options when disarming or trapping an opponent's weapon. Some other weapons that are used in this martial art, uh, there is the Mysop, which is a weapon similar to a Tanfa. They also used a variety of clubs and fighting sticks, as well as the staff and the knife. Now, one of the things that they focused on first in this particular art, when they train you in this art, defense is the first priority. So blocking and dodging and parrying and the rationale for that is because if you focus on defense and not getting hit that's going to help you retain a much calmer mind in the heat of battle than if you focused more on your offense first. Another type of Thai weapon is the Nagaw and this is a bladed staff not too different from the Japanese Naganada. This weapon was usually used by warriors who fought from horseback or even from elephants, and we'll be talking a little bit more about elephants in just a moment here. Now, as far as armor goes, I wasn't able to find much about armor. When I was doing research, I did see uh, some pictures and it looks like they used lacquer armor, which might be more wood with uh, protective coating. They did also have metal breastplates, and their shields tended to be more long, narrow shields, as opposed to the round shields that we usually see with Vikings and Scandinavian warriors, or the, uh, you know, the I forgot the exact specification they give it, but usually a lot of the shields that we see in more uh, medieval Europe settings, it's um, the more of that diamond-shaped shield. So the shape of the shield quite a bit different than uh, some of the other uh, cultures and shields I've seen. So for their armor, it's while they did have breastplates, I didn't really see anything that looked like it would qualify as like a full plate or a field plate. It looked more like they had more half plate armor where uh, they would have metal 
uh, to cover the forearms, uh, the shoulders, the upper arm, the, the chest, the torso. And then there, of course, would be chain mail in between to provide a little bit more flexibility and protection for those areas. Didn't really seem to do as much armor on the legs. And possibly that's just to uh, prevent that armor from interfering with your footwork and your movement. And, of course, they did also have helms as well. Some of the pictures I've seen, they their helms actually kind of reminded me of some of the Japanese samurai helms I've seen, where, yeah, you had the part that was protecting your head, but you also had a faceplate that was uh, designed to look like a human face, except with fierce or monstrous features, perhaps as a way to intimidate your your opponent. Now, another possibility when we're talking about protective and items and such, another tradition we see in Thailand is yantra tattooing. And these are tattoos believed to offer protection as well as good luck. Now, these designs were not just meant for uh, people, of course. They could also be placed upon a house or a building for similar purposes. So you might remember I talked a little bit about tattooing when I uh, did a historical gaming episode on uh, Oceania because some Polynesian warriors were also uh, known to give themselves tattoos that were believed to bestow protection upon the, the person. And some of these tattoos, it's like, yeah, they, most of the time they covered the back and the chest, but they could also cover other parts of the body as well. So how you might want to work with that, up to you. I could see maybe if you did like a full torso tattoo on your back and your chest, that could provide you with a minor armor class bonus, but only if you're not wearing armor. And of course, the more uh, powerful you want for these tattoos, the more money you're going to pay because we can assume that the person doing the tattoo not only would have a high degree of skill, but maybe he needs to use ink made from special or magical ingredients. Now, I mentioned before uh, elephants, that there was this pole arm that was generally used from horseback or on top of an elephant. Now, the long ago, the uh, Thai people did use elephants for combat. So it was not unusual to see mounted uh, soldiers on elephants. Though usually the rider for uh, this elephant was generally a, a royalty or it was an elite warrior. So of course being on the back of the elephant could be quite advantageous because it allowed the rider to rain arrows down upon his enemies or fight other raiders, riders, sorry, uh, with his lance. However, the most vulnerable part of the elephant would be its legs. So not only would you have this rider on the elephant and maybe an archer to accompany him, but you would also have several guards that were assigned to protect the animal's legs. So this could be an interesting idea for a prestige class or a kit where you start out initially as one of the guards assigned to defend the elephant's legs. And eventually you work your way up to the person who 
you know, controls the elephant. Now, of course, this does provide its own set of unique challenges for your campaign. I'm sure that elephants do eat quite a lot of, of food. So, of course, you're going to have to find a way to uh, feed this animal as well as keep it under control. And it might be better, though, if you're running a campaign where you do a lot of large-scale combat because if you think about your average adventuring party going out into the wilderness, well, if everyone's riding upon an elephant and has, you know, five or six guards that are protecting the elephant's legs, yeah, that can get kind of a tricky to manage if that's how several members of your party are outfitted. But it does make an interesting idea for maybe uh, an important NPC or an enemy that you have to fight where uh, when you're dealing with him, not only do you have this this opponent on the back of an elephant who's uh, shooting arrows at you or stabbing at you with this long pole arm, but you also have to deal with the elephant itself and the people who are assigned to protect the elephant's legs. Well, with clerics, this is interesting on how we can work with clerical classes in a Thai campaign. Now, Buddhism has been a part of Thai culture for many centuries, and the majority of people in Thailand practice one form of Buddhism or another. But before we talk about Buddhism, a couple other ideas for how you might develop clerics and priest characters in the campaign. Now, the uh, the Thai people did have some exposure to Chinese religion, so it wouldn't be too out of place to incorporate uh, some of the Chinese deities, or rather clerics of these deities, in a Thai campaign. However, they should be exotic, so you're probably not going to encounter them in large numbers. Another form of religion in Thailand is animism. This is actually a very ancient religious belief system that we find all over the world. Now, animism is essentially the belief that everything, from plants and animals to natural formations, either has a spirit or some sort of spiritual quality. So, it's different from a similar religious belief called pantheism in a couple different ways. Now, pantheism is more or less the belief that everything is a part of God. A good example might be with Hinduism. In Hinduism, they believe that everyone has, within their soul, a small fragment of the ultimate reality. I think it was called the Atman. And the purpose of the religious practice or the religious experience of Hinduism was to go through the cycles of reincarnation. You know, you would believe you were born, you would die, and then you'd be reborn. Depending on your actions, you either went up a step or you could go down a step. You see, the Hindus believe that you're part of one of several different castes. The four major ones are you've got the priests, followed by the, in step below, you've got the warriors and the administrators. Below that, I believe it's the uh, the merchants and the artisans. And then below that, you've got the peasant class. 
So in Hinduism, karma is best described as duty. So if you're born into a farming family, you don't, you know, aspire to go out and go on great adventures, slaying monsters and fighting enemy armies. No, you're a farmer. So if you want to get good karma, you devote your life to being a good farmer. And if you were a good farmer, then maybe when you're reborn, you go to, you know, you'll move up to the next class. And then eventually you'll go up again. And then finally, when you've reached the the highest point before you can return to uh, the ultimate reality, Brahman, you would become a priest and you'd be part of that priestly class. And I know there was at least one effort to kind of work with this. In the second edition Legends and Lore uh, book, they do talk a little bit about karma and how your character can earn or lose karma and then what would happen if he died, where if you had a certain amount of karma, your character might be reincarnated, but with some bonus to your stats, or he might be reincarnated as like a goblin. And if you really messed up, you would be reincarnated as a slug and basically taken out of play. There is also the belief in shamanism, where I've talked a bit about shamanism here and there. Eventually, the shaman is someone who acts as an intermediary between the world of spirits and gods and uh, spiritual beings and humanity. It's said that they heal by helping mend the soul. They also are known to go on vision quests as a way to uh, find knowledge or uh, recover some sort of hidden wisdom. And Buddhism can be a tricky religion for a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons. So before we get to that, let me just tell you, talk a little bit about Buddhism. And I don't consider myself an expert on this religion, but I do have a degree in religious studies. And uh, one of the professors that I uh, studied under for a little bit, he was a practicing Buddhist. And, uh, you know, of course, we talked about it in the world religion class I took as, as well. Now, Buddhism uh, was founded by a person named Siddhartha uh, Gautama. I'm probably mispronouncing that that last name horribly. But when Siddhartha was born, it was foretold that he would either become a great king or a great savior. Now, he was born, I believe, into the warrior class. So, naturally, his father wanted to see him become a great king, a great warrior, a leader of men. So during the early part of Siddhartha's life, uh, his father tried to uh, shield him from the outside world. So tried to give him a very sheltered life. And it was said physically in his younger years, he was very powerful, athletic, and very uh, beautiful and attractive to behold. And as I remember uh, learning in my religious studies class, it said that whenever he would go out for a chariot ride across the countryside, his father would first uh, make sure he sent some of his servants out to uh, clear the way of any old or sick or poor people. Well, one day, uh, Siddhartha did go out. Um, He slipped out of the, the palace 
And while he was on this chariot ride, he noticed a sick person, a decaying corpse, and an, a monk in aesthetic. And this made him realize that, okay, well, these are parts of life that he was always sheltered from. You know, disease and old age and dying. So that's when he decided he was going to go on this uh, this quest for enlightenment. And it was said that, well, he went from going from this life of luxury and privilege to becoming one of these, these monks who... Uh, basically did nothing while well, they basically begged for their food and they didn't own anything. But he found that didn't really work for him. So he tried to search for the middle path. So, And, and that's something that's actually very important in Buddhism, uh, moderation. And as he was meditating under the Bodhi tree, that's when he became enlightened. So the revelations that uh, Siddhartha, eventually known as the Buddha, uh, had received his first, there's the four noble truths. One, that suffering exists. Two, desire is the cause of suffering. Three, suffering can be stopped. And finally, the key to ending suffering was to follow the Eightfold Path which consisted of the right view, which is the realization that our actions have consequences, the right resolve, which is to dedicate yourself to spiritual enlightenment and to refrain from harming others, right speech, basically no lying and be polite, right action, no killing, stealing, or violence, or trying to bring harm upon another person. Rightly, right livelihood, which essentially this is don't own more than you need. Also, there are some jobs that uh, it is believed would interfere with your quest for enlightenment, and that is dealing in the trade of weapons, uh, poison, alcohol, meat, or slaves. Next is right effort, which this is, as far as I understand, this is trying to prevent unwholesome mental states. Right mindfulness, which is being conscientious, conscientious, sorry, or conscious of what you are doing. And finally, right samadhi. And this is the pursuit of meditation and cultivating the mind. So, he, he taught that these principles could lead to enlightenment, nirvana. And when you achieve nirvana, it's essentially extinguishing the fires of hate, greed, desire, ignorance, and everything that keeps you tied to the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And, and this is where one of the main things that uh, makes Buddhism different from Hinduism. Well, Hindus believe that it might take many, many lifetimes for you to uh, go through all this reincarnation and eventually rejoin Brahman. Buddhists believe that with the correct effort, 
this could be done in one lifetime. At least that's what I remember from my uh, the class I took. Some other important aspects of Buddhism. There is a belief in karma that your actions will have consequences in the next life. Uh, as I said before, moderation was very important because while Buddha was born to wealth and did li- li- live a privileged life, he also tried living the opposite way, where he denied himself everything, and that really didn't work as well either. There's also this tendency to avoid attachment to material things because, well, another one of their important beliefs is that nothing is permanent. Now, here's why I think it could be challenging to play a Buddhist character in a D&D type setting, because... Usually in D&D, you think nothing of going into, um, you know, a dungeon or a forest or a cave and, you know, killing orcs, goblins, ogres, dragons. That's not really seen as anything unusual or or bad. Whereas with Buddhism, uh, there's this, you know, you don't want to take sentient life. And so you would really need to focus on non-lethal force and that could make you decide to study things like how to disarm opponents, how to take them down and immobilize them, or how to knock them unconscious instead of killing them. Now, I'm not exactly an expert on where Buddhism stands in relation to killing, though I suppose in a fantasy setting, we could rule that undead and supernatural creatures are exempt from this. So it's okay to to defeat them, but when you're dealing with your fellow man, you want to try to avoid killing them or causing serious or permanent injury. Another interesting uh, aspect of a a Buddhist character that you could could try if you wanted to, and this would be more of an idea for like a, a high-level prestige class, or an epic-level adventurer. Now, I forgot the, the term that was given to these types of individuals, but I remember my religious study professor telling us a story that explained this, you know, what, what these people were basically like. And it, the story was that there were three men traveling in a desert, They ran out of food, they ran out of water, and they were on the verge of dying. Well, they came across this large circular wall. So the first traveler uses his remaining strength, and he climbs up the wall, looks over it, he shrieks in delight, and then jumps into the other side of the wall. Well, the second traveler, he's wondering what's going on here, so he also climbs up the wall, looks over it, yells out in delight, and then, you know, jumps into this this walled area. Now, the final traveler, he also climbs up the wall, and he looks in it, and he sees this beautiful, lush paradise, and basically anything he could ever want. Well, instead of jumping in there, though, to... Uh, join his his traveling companions, he decides that instead of going there himself, he's going to go out into the desert and he's going to try to find 
other people so he can bring them, he can lead them away from suffering to this, this paradise. So, like I said, I forgot what the name was given to these people. It might be Bodhisattva. I, I might be wrong on that, but uh, essentially it's someone who could have achieved enlightenment. They could have entered nirvana, but instead they choose to remain on earth because they want to try to help guide other people to this, this paradise, this enlightenment. Now, as far as wizards go in Thai folklore, I really wasn't able to find much. So I, we could probably use the same rules for most historical settings if you're trying to do a historical fantasy as opposed to high fantasy. Uh, usually in a lot of your historical fantasy supplements, you're generally going to focus on spells that tend to be very subtle. So, you know, and we've I've talked about this in my other episodes where, you know, having someone running around casting fireball and lightning bolt and meteor swarm out of place if we're talking about historical fantasy. Now, of course, your traditional high fantasy, like in D&D, that stuff's perfectly fine. So, I mean, I would say that if you're going to do a wizard character, or if you're going to allow wizards, have them focus on the more subtle magic, as opposed to these powerful spells that are meant to kill large numbers of enemies at once. Well, this brings us on to monsters. Now, Thai folklore has a rich tradition of ghosts and various ghost stories. So if you're playing 2nd edition, there is a kit in the complete Paladin's Handbook called the Ghost Hunter. So I could see that being very appropriate for a historical Thai campaign. Some of the more interesting ghosts that I read about the Krasui, and this is a floating female head with internal organs hanging from, from the neck. They serve a similar function to the vampire. I know they do appear in one of the first edition Dungeons & Dragons supplements. I'm wanting to say it's the Fiend Folio, and it was, I, I think it went by a different name. They called it the Leak. So if if you have a chance, go dig out your old uh, Fiend Folio, and uh, you'll probably be able to find it in there. I I remember they did have the the picture of like there was a woman's head with all these organs hanging down from it. Now this particular monster, it was said to focus on attacking pregnant women, either women who were getting near the end of their pregnancy or who had recently given birth, and it was said that these uh, these evil spirits were responsible for stillborn or uh, children who were born sickly. Now, it's said the best way to get rid of these monsters is you have to find its headless body and destroy it before it comes back. So naturally, these creatures are going to try to find a very secluded, uh, very hard-to-access spot to keep their body while they're out flying around doing their evil things. Now, it was also said that thorny plants also would, would help keep this monster away. It was said if you would plant uh, bushes that had you know sharp thorns, 
around your house, it would keep the monster away because it was afraid that its organs would get tangled in the, the plants and it wouldn't be able to escape. Another type of ghost is the Phi Tai Hong. And this was a ghost to someone who died a sudden, violent death. These were said to be vengeful spirits. So I could see them essentially being uh, similar to a revenant in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. We also have the Phi Fong. And this is a male ghost with an unpleasant smell. So you could give it similar abilities to a ghast, where uh, if you are too close to this creature, you have to make a saving throw, and if you fail, you're essentially nauseated, which is going to make it a lot harder for you to fight that creature. Another type of ghost is the Nang Tani, Tani, and this is actually a female ghost that is associated with banana trees. You could probably put them similar to like a nymph where they're generally kind and try to avoid people. However, it was said that they could be quite hostile towards men who had cheated on their wives. There's also another type of ghost called a pop. And this was a ghost who was said to devour human entrails. These were said to be very powerful ghosts. And the only way you could get rid of them is by uh, being exercised by a spirit doctor who practiced a special dance. There are Naga in Thai mythology as well, so you can incorporate those creatures from Dungeons and Dragons. We also have a creature similar to a were-tiger called the Suya Saming. And finally, there is the Yaksha. This is an ogre-like being that has its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. So they're said to be green-skinned with fangs and large eyes. Statues of these creatures were also were often put around temples, as it was believed they would guard the temples. So I could see these as being a type of creature that could be both good or evil or even neutral. So since there is this emphasis on spirits and ghosts in Thai mythology, one of the things that people would sometimes build were spirit houses. These were miniature buildings that were intended to provide shelter for wandering ghosts. And it could also hold offerings for them as well. And it was said that these would this was done to appease the spirits that maybe couldn't be kept away. So by giving them these shelters, these spirit houses they would be pacified so they wouldn't cause any trouble. So there you have it, some ideas for how you might go about running a uh, Dungeons & Dragons campaign in Thailand. So I hope you enjoyed the show and found this interesting. Uh, Again, visit uh, Point of Insanity Network at poigamestudio.podbean.com. I also recently set up a, a new page on Facebook uh, I think it's POI Network, or you can just look for Point of Insanity Network, and um, that's going to be our, our new page we set up to keep people updated on all of our podcasts. You know, geekery in general, uh, want to hear something interesting, whose podcast is it anyway, and musically challenged. So, hey, uh, if you like geekery in general, 
please feel free to go there and uh, check out some of the other types of shows that we offer as well. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.